At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading to the airport, right? Yep, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now, but I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR. A playlist original. Just watch me. The medium is the message. Proof is a proof. What kind of proof? It's a proof. It has no core identity. Smashed potatoes are no gravy. You know what I'm saying? Speaking uh, moistly on them. Hello and welcome to Just Watch Me. I'm Kate. And I'm Liv. And today we're talking about spies and in the Cold War. I know. It's crazy, but there's a Canadian connection, we promise. We're giving you a Canadian-ish Cold War espionage special story. (laughs) We're not sure if it's what you ordered, but it's what you're getting. So we're going to start this discussion by starting with Gordon Lonsdale. Yes, who we should just say was the mastermind of the Portland spy ring. Uh, If any of you are into, you know, cold, cold war spy stories, you'll definitely have heard of the Portland spy ring. But what you may not know is that there's a Canadian connection. Let's like spoil it from the start, maybe. (laughs) Let's get the background on Gordon Lonsdale, who actually isn't Gordon Lonsdale. Because the real Gordon Lonsdale doesn't really matter for our story. Sorry. Sorry. um, To the deceased. Okay. Okay. But to be fair, what's kind of interesting is who he is and how his identity was stolen. And and more interestingly, why his identity was stolen, I think. So Gordon um, Lonsdale was born in uh, 1924 in Colbat, Alberta. And his father was a minor and his mother immigrated from Finland. So this is, this is the real Gordon Lonsdale. And his parents separated, at which point his mother, uh, when he was eight years old, took him to Finland. So after that point, he was believed to have died in about uh, 1943. And the Soviets obtained his papers and used them to create um, this imposter. So they used like the real Gordon Lonsdale in order to kind of like create an identity for this Russian spy. Now, the reason why this particular story is interesting is because it's a common thing that Russians do. 
there's an account um, that Russians would go to graveyards uh, in order to find like uh, essentially children who died early and then t- steal their identity. So yeah, so it's kind of, it's a little, it's a little crazy, but uh, Canadian children were definitely targeted by, by the Russians in order to create kind of like these false identities for their spies. Shall we talk about the fake Gordon Lonsdale? It's very confusing to read these accounts because they, a lot of the accounts continue to call the spy, the Russian spy, Gordon Lonsdale in the story. And it's hard to know who they're talking about. Um, yeah. So, I mean, for all intents and purposes, like Gordon Lonsdale has no, no part in this story. But no. I think it's easier to just call him that uh, rather than think? his Russian name. Or should <laughs> yeah. we just call him Molody? Should we just call him? Because in my head, that's how I think of him. So okay. Okay, the fake fine. Gordon Lonsdale is called a name that I'm about to butcher, Conan <laughs> Trofimovich Molody. So we'll call him Molody. Yeah? Okay. Sure. So Molody was born in Moscow in 1922. Um, so, you know, just two years before Lonsdale. Anyway, he moves to California when he's around 10, uh, where he lives with an aunt. That's why he had perfect English and was able to, to blend in and, and pose as a Canadian. He returns to Moscow five years after. Um, 1932, his family moves to Poland. He serves in the underground in World War II. Um, he served in the military administration in Berlin. After the war, he went to university that's all fine. Molody and his family moved to Poland in 32. He serves in the World War II. He gets noticed during his service, and he gets recruited by the secret police. So he starts working in the military administration in Berlin after the war, where he goes to university. He poses as a German. Uh, he goes, and then he gets sent to the United States. I think that this is like really where we say like the story of his life is um, there's a lot of inconsistencies. There's a lot of different accounts oh, yeah. about, um, I think we can say that here. I think that's fine. There's a lot of different people who say different things about his life. Uh, you know, there doesn't seem to be like a 100, like a, an, an account that's 100% accurate, but to be honest, I think that's the point, right? Like he's supposed to be this like high level spy the Russians are literally trying to create a new identity for him and separate him from like his real identity. Right. So it makes total sense that like, we don't have all the pieces of his life. We're not 100% sure about like what happened. And there's a ton of inconsistencies. Like for me, that totally tracks with like who we're talking about. There's active misinformation by the Russian state like till this day. I had a peek at the Wikipedia page just for interest. I, I don't use it as a source in my notes for this. But I had a peek at the Wikipedia page, and some of the things that are cited are, like, from the Russian government, well, <laughs> which clearly is probably not a credible source, you know? Yeah, like, I think that the biggest, like, telltale for me was the fact that, I mean, like, we have no reason to believe that he wasn't born in Russia, right? Like, for, for all accounts, like, he was born in Russia, but... After he came back um, to Russia, like after the, the whole saga of everything, he actually wrote a memoir. And in his memoir, he maintains that he was born in Colbert, Ontario, which is like so absurd. And no one else has corroborated that. But he's like sticking to his story until like the end. The book yeah, is called Spy. Like, just yeah. tell us. <laughs> it, yeah, exactly. It's just like so absurd. So it's just like, it just like really articulated to me that like the Russians are like actively trying, I think to throw us off, off their tracks a little bit because like they, they still have a stake in the game, right? Like they're still not going to like just 
put all their cards on the table and be like, well, this is how we uh, manufacture these hidden identities for our spies. You know, like it makes sense. But speaking to sometimes the absurdity of it, that kind of made me think I was reading an article from a journalist who's posted in Moscow and he was talking about, you know, how Putin's Russia is starting to look a lot more like, look a lot more like the Cold War USSR. And he was talking about how a lot of the kind of what he experienced from the Russian state as a journalist in Moscow now is... And was the and was the case during the Cold War was a lot of like silly harassment is kind of how he describes it. Let me find what do you out. mean by that silly harassment? What's well, that, like an example of that? <laughs> is it? I'm curious. So this is a journalist for the Guardian called Luke Harding. Okay, here's an example. Um, the FSB, which is now the the new KGB, revived another old KGB tactic where that the exasperated American ambassador in Moscow calls house intrusions over nearly a period of four years. FSB agents would would frequently break into the Moscow flat where he lived with his wife and two small children. They left a series of ridiculous clues just to show they had been there. These included open windows, central heating wires cut family photos deleted from laptops and most amusingly a sex manual in Russian helpfully left beside my bed. (laughs) <laughs> Gosh, that's so creepy though. Like it's as much as that's weird. Like, as much as that's like so silly and stuff, like if that stuff was happening to me, like I think it might drive me to insanity. So like I don't know. Like I but, think that there is like so there's even like, humor so serious. in it though. Totally, totally. But like if you were like if you were like came home every night and something was just off and you knew that was something was off and you had no reason to understand why it had happened. Like, don't you think that would like drive you crazy? I think it would drive me insane. I think so too. I think this, this journalist seems to find some humor in it. He calls some of it demonstrative surveillance, always more inspector Clouseau, which is <laughs> from yeah. the other. Yes. Then Jean uh, Le Carré, Putin spies made it clear they were listening to my calls. They pulled the plug, for example, whenever I made a joke about Russia's president. Like other despots, Putin doesn't have a sense of humor. Back to the <laughs> – that was our little trip into the absurd, but – or the absurdity of how the Russian state acts sometimes. I feel like we were saying, when did he come to Canada? And the answer to that question is uh, in 53, it looks like. <laughs> oh, no. We were yeah. talking about why – but the tactic of stealing, like, the identities and why – all to say the way the Russian state behaves makes it difficult to research yeah. and re- like report on Cold War spy stuff. That's what the purpose oh. of that tangent was. Yeah. Sometimes, right. And sometimes the way that they obscure things seems just what Silly. could the motivation possibly be? So um, I think we want to just kind of skedaddle over this next bit because like for all accounts purposes, like he really just like – was in Canada for but a moment. Um, and he we like- should probably dwell on that because that's the only Canadian. I know, but like I have nothing on it. Like everyone's like he was in Canada at this time and then he went to the States and then he went to England and that's where the story starts. Like there's, I didn't find anything about the, his like time there. I was hoping to find something about like, did he learn to impersonate a Canadian? Like did he try and- Say you know, absorb Canadian, yeah, like <laughs> absorb Canadian culture and and try and walk like the Canadians do. Like, did he spend any time doing that, or did he just assume that Americans think that 
you know, we're just like them and they don't think like us. So he didn't really need to put in the effort to fool the Brits or the Americans <laughs> that he was a Canadian. I don't know. I just like imagine him like, like looking and watching his neighbors and trying to like <laughs> go to church to like get to talk to people after mass and see what they're like, but we don't get any of that. So I'll just yeah, make it up in my head. Listen, we know that he was a spy and we know that that's something spies do. So I think like it's fair to draw that conclusion. I think that's a part of the story that I'm okay with including. Let's hop to it. This is his big moment. When he go in um, 1954, he settles in London. Um, in all accounts, it's difficult to like... <laughs> or can I say... Yeah. This is the espionage. Yes. We're here. We're Walk here. the espionage. This is the this is the moment everyone's been waiting for. He was ident- he identified in London um, as a Canadian jukebox salesman, and of course he went by the name of uh, Gordon Lunsdale, which we've already uh, talked about. So um, no, okay, yes, okay, here it is, here it is. Okay, so he <laughs> used KGB funds to set up this business, which was a jukebox and gumball salesperson and uh it was reported by politico that he became kgb's first multi-millionaire illegal operator now i don't know how reliable that is but i found it to be incredibly funny see here's where here's another example of the kgb wasting time and money why do you need to be both a bubblegum salesman and a jukebox salesman why isn't one good enough why is it more credible to be both i would argue it doesn't make sense to be both you know what you know what? He needs two full-time jobs. <laughs> <laughs> I guess they wanted him to be successful. I don't know. So that kind of brings us to London here. But of course, like, he's a pretty good spy for the most part. He obviously gets caught, so he can't be that amazing. But um, <laughs> that means- He was a great spy until they caught him. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he actually wasn't, like, kind of the inciting incident. Like, he wasn't the reason necessarily wasn't why- fault. It wasn't his fault. There you go. He wasn't his fault that they were caught entirely. So um, so we're going to kind of like take it back a little bit now to talk about whose fault it was. Liv, let's – we're in it. We're in the espionage. Yeah. Can you, can you take us through the infamous Portland Five? Can you tell us about this Soviet spy ring? And you yes. know it's sinister because it's called a ring. Yeah. <laughs> So there was five people who were kind of famously part of this this ring. I'll take kind of each member in turn as they kind of come into the story. So basically, uh, it got its name because it was based in Portland, uh, which is on the coast of England. And um, essentially, they were trying to collect secrets uh, from this uh, top secret underwater research center um, that the UK and NATO were used in order to develop submarines. And uh, this place was called the UADE, the Underwater Detection Establishment. And, and for all accounts and purposes, it did seem like they, they collected some top secret information and uh, the Russians as a result had uh, you know, some intel into the, these submarines. So, you know, so there, uh, so the reason why this whole thing came on to uh, MI, M1, M15. <laughs> oh my Isn't God. MI, Isn't it MI5? MI5. Because MI5. I know James Bond is MI6. Oh my God. Which I'm doesn't like, exist. I thought it was real for until like a year ago. 
that's funny. I so did I. There's a lot of lessons to be learned in this, but the first one is don't be anti-Semitic. So yeah. the investigation began um, because a CIA informant whose code name was Sniper uh, received a letter uh, that was anti-Semitic, and he just suspected that it was an MI5 officer uh, whose name was Harry Houghton. And now the reason why he was so sure that it was him was because he was just known to be like a loudmouth, like kind of mean guy. And the more that we like get into it and the more kind of like things that come out about him, like he was just a horrible, horrible person. Like, so he um, had previously been married and he was known to have like abused his wife in such a way that's just like, honestly, like the most terrible thing you've ever heard. Like he almost threw her off a cliff. He beat her. Like it was just like, just put yourself into like imagining the worst type of abuse. And like, that was him. So like, this is just like a horrible guy. So it's like, no, like it makes sense why he like thinks it's him. Okay. So sticking with his wife for a second, just as like a side note, um, his ex-wife, I should say in, um, 56, she had actually said to, uh, MI5, I think that my husband is doing some fishy activity because he had been like going to um, the Polish embassy and he was like looking at confidential documents. Like she was just noticing like irregular patterns of behavior. So she actually went to them and she said, I think that you should look into this, like something's off. And it's uh, such a sign of the times because they immediately wrote her off. They were like, no, like obviously not. Like, what are you talking about? You don't know anything. Um, And so when this all came to light, at the end of the day, it was a really bad look for them because they had an opportunity to have caught him in 56 if they had like followed that lead. Um, and of course they weren't caught until the early sixties. So, you know, like that was a significant amount of time that passed. And it's a sign of these times that very few accounts of these include this woman's, what would have been an incredibly important contribution. Mm -hmm. She is erased from a lot of these accounts. I found like the woman who should have brought this entire thing down, of course, was erased from history. That's a sign of also our current times. Yes. But in defense to uh, Trevor Trevor Barnes, the author of Dead Doubles, he, uh, who we've uh, used a, a lot of his book to base kind of like make the foundation of this episode. Uh, that's actually one of the prominent themes in his, in his book and, and, the reason why I know this story is because he really kind of emphasizes that, you know, that women were incredibly capable and they were constantly cast aside. And you see that in so many different times in this story. And he's very, uh, uh, yeah, he really picks up on that and, and makes, makes sure to point that out. So we have a couple of our other uh, references to that. So anyway, uh, the tangent over about uh, Harry that. Houghton totally there. Brand. Yeah, I know. I knew you would. Um, so Basically, at the same time that they got um, this tip about the letter, they had um, a well-respected CIA agent running in the Polis intelligence who was known as Sniper. And he reported that Polish intelligence had recruited an agent who was in the British Naval Attaché office in Warsaw. But then when the agent returned to Britain he was acting as a double agent for the KGB. So he, Sniper said that he couldn't really remember the name of like this person, but he was like, I'm pretty sure it starts with an H. (laughs) (laughs) And it just so happened. And he gave like a a name that like roughly sounded like Houghton. So um, MI5 
put it together that there was no other person that it could have been other than Houghton. With all all of these things kind of came together at the same place. And so Houghton was under investigation. And so MI5 started uh, trailing him and watching his every move, essentially. And so uh, kind of the big event that, that really set this whole thing into motion, in my opinion, was that um, they met Houghton and his uh, girlfriend, who... Ethel Gee, known as Bunty? <laughs> yeah. Yep, that's her. So she, so the two of them um, met this man um, outside the old Vic Theater. At first, the, uh, you know, the officers who were trailing them thought that they recognized him as this like Polish officer, uh, but it turned out that it wasn't, it wasn't him. And uh, when they ran the plates of the car that they saw him drive off in, they discovered that uh, the car was registered in a Gordon Lonsdale. You guessed it. So that's how they connected um, Gordon Lonsdale with uh, Houghton. And then um, they subsequently began uh, trailing Lonsdale, but let's call him Lonsdale. (laughs) For anyone who's confused, we're going to Melody, okay? So um, then once they start trailing him, they actually followed him into um, to a bank where he uh, had a safety deposit box. And at which point he like completely vanished. And they, I guess, had some confirmation that he was going to be out of town for a while. And so they decided to take a huge risk, open the box and see what was in it in order to like confirm that he was a spy or whatever. This was obviously a huge risk because um, if like anything was different in the box or if like there was any indication that they had tampered with it, they could have like been found out and he may have like disappeared into the night, right? I guess that's always the fear. Um, But they decided to to go with it and in the safety deposit box, they found um, like a ton of uh, spy equipment um, and just yeah, and they found a ton of stuff that basically confirmed like 100% that he was a spy and um, the really, really creepy thing actually was that in that um, box was a picture of Earlswell, who was like, um, I, I guess the officer who was in charge of the investigation. And so immediately they kind of like freaked out and they were thinking like, is he involved in it? Is he actually a double agent? Blah, blah, blah. Uh, he was able to like confirm immediately that, that he wasn't um, and that this guy was in fact just a spy who was spying on them. So once they had confirmed that um, that he was a spy, they you know obviously were they were trailing him anyway, but they continued to trail him, and they found that he was going to the house of the Krugers, and um, it kind of when this all this whole thing blows up, it, what what basically their involvement was is that they operated as like the communications people. They had the radio in their house uh, that that Melody was using in order to communicate with the Russians. So. Um, those are kind of like all the players. And so the Krugers were actually Americans who were like diehard communists, it seems like, and became agents uh, for Russia, which is kind of interesting. And they did like a nice couple. Uh, and they're like very reminiscent to me. Like and their account of them is very re- reminiscent to me of like the two, like the lead couple in the Americans. Like that's really who they remind me of. Like they're just like this nice couple who like really aren't doing like anything crazy. Like they're, they're really just like the communication it sounds like. But, um, in the trial, they really tried to like play it off. Like, 
oh, they didn't even know. Like he was just using them. They were totally innocent. And like they were 100%. Like the evidence like just does not suggest that. Like they had all of this like equipment in their house that they like obviously knew how to use. And <laughs> um, they actually found like Canadian passports in their house. Like they were clearly like there was a lot of evidence to suggest like they were ready to like make a getaway at any point. Like, you know what I mean? Like they were very much in on the situation for all intents and purposes. And despite like any characterizations you might hear that, like, I think like, it seems to me like the three of them, like the Krugers and um, Malone were like friends because at the end of the day, he like, he like vouched for them, like not knowing and like really tried to get them off, but he didn't do that with Houghton. Like he was literally like, how is the reason why this whole thing fucked up? Yeah, Yeah. totally. And he is obviously, but like, I think that, uh, like there was a lot of accounts of like them being followed and like the, the agents that were following them from like the, the British agents that were following them could often like overhear Houghton in conversation because he was like so loud and obnoxious, but they could like never <laughs> hear Maloney because he was like obviously <laughs> a more like, like intelligent, like he just like was trained to be a spy. Like he just knew what he was doing a little bit more and like Houghton obviously didn't. He fucking blew this whole thing up. Yeah. So that's like the top and tail of what happened. Like there's a lot of like intricacies like within the story about like stuff that they did that was like, really interesting and cool. And if you're really into spy stuff, like definitely go down that path because like there's some cool stuff to be had. However, like for all intents and purposes, like we're not going down that path. To be honest, like this, <laughs> there's like a whole big story of like the arrest and stuff like that. But like basically like they had been collecting all this evidence. Um, like I said, like in the safety deposit box, like they had found a lot of incriminating stuff with uh, respect to Malone. It actually, they obviously followed him to the Kruger. So they knew that the Krugers were involved in some way, but they actually didn't have any significant evidence uh, that they were like Russian spies until they actually like the moments of the arrest. So what basically happened is that they they came into their house under the guise that there was like neighborhood burglaries. And then they said like, no, okay, actually we're arresting you. Um, and they had a search warrant. But then um, Mrs. Kruger basically said, oh, do you mind? Like, I just have to like go get my handbag and I have to like light the fire or something like that. It was like something to do with the old houses. I didn't really get it, but I'm sure someone else would. Um, and they were like, uh, the British agents were obviously like, switched on enough to realize that like she was going to go do something fishy. And then when they found, um, so they, they were like, no, give me your handbag. And there apparently was like a bit of a tug of, tug of war for the handbag. And then when they opened it, that's when they found, uh, wasn't that, that was one of the things that was found in the safety deposit box too, was like a cipher. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That yeah, one yeah. is a cipher. Yes, that's it. And so it was actually in her purse. So it wasn't, so it, it wasn't actually until that moment that they were that they had like confirmed that they were also like Russian agents. So it was like a kind of like a bit of good luck. And if she probably hadn't said anything, it might have been fine for a little while. But like I said, like their house was like full of like uh, espionage equipment, <laughs> and um, their house actually like this is funny. The after the story broke, the newspapers characterized their house as the house of secrets, and. Um, they said that like as the house has been passed through like different owners, like various owners have like found even more stuff. Cool. So, um, yeah. So it's like, there was just like, obviously like they were going to get found out, but it's funny that like 
in that moment. It was like the, the last second that they got found out. And the reason why they, um, I should say this, the reason why they kind of like went in for their arrest at the time that they did was because uh, the original informant sniper wanted to defect. And so um, they wanted to do it kind of like in line with his defection so that, you know, nothing would blow up the, the operation or scare anyone off or well, I guess they would have had to, if he was going to defect, then they would really have to act on the intelligence they had because they would lose it, right? Because he would probably. Yeah. Like my vibe off. was that, yeah, like my vibe was also that like his defection would like raise red flags about like stuff that he knew. You know what I mean? Because yeah. he was obviously like yeah. in with the Polish people. So like then they were like, oh, well, then if he's defecting, he's probably going to tell them about this, this, and this, and this, and like, let's get them out or whatever. And they just disappear, which is like, obviously what they, so they're, they've been arrested. And after the arrest, uh, the Krugers like, were like, nope, you can't take our fingerprints. And then there was a whole court battle and the court was like, no, we're getting, you're allowed. You can take the fingerprints. And after they had the fingerprints, it established their real identity of Morris and Lana Cohen. Yeah. And so that they got their identity right away. However, nobody knew who Malundi was. They like, or I should say Gordon uh, Lonsdale. Like they just, they couldn't figure out who was real, like who this guy really was. Like, I think that they realized pretty early that he wasn't who he said he was. Um, and they suspect, they susp- or I should say, they should I should say that they suspected that he wasn't who they, uh, who he said he was, um, but they didn't know who he was. And so they called in backup and they uh, asked the CIA and the RCMP for some help. And uh, the RCMP was actually um, a vital reason uh, how they found out that he wasn't, he was not, in fact, uh, Gordon Lonsdale as he had been like pretending to be. So shall we get into to the RCMP involvement in this story? The RCMP starts looking into Lonsdale. Um, they find he's born in Cobalt, Ontario. He's got a driver's license. He got in Vancouver in 1955. He applied for a passport. But that was about all they found. And apparently the, the fact that there was so little record of his existence was suspicious which I have to say is kind of conspiracy theory logic that (laughs) (laughs) evidence is evidence. But I mean, in this case, yeah, it makes sense that when someone leaves such a, such a minimal trace of their existence like that, yeah, that seems strange. So the RCMP is able to track down Gordon Lonsdale's father, the real Gordon Lonsdale. They speak to him and he gives them a pretty vital piece of information. That's the RCMP then relays to MI5, which is pretty critical to Lonsdale's arrest and eventual conviction. Gordon Lonsdale's father confirms that he knew his son was circumcised. They do an inspection. MI5, <laughs> MI5 takes that information. And, do, and the way the people describe this is so funny in like the articles, like a medical exam or a, yeah. a, it was like, a, one was like a, a very specific medical exam of Melody. We know what you're doing there, folks. We know yeah. you need to look at. You just, just say you just just say that you've examined him. Who? So they conduct a medical exam of Melody and discover he was not circumcised. So this was crucial intelligence evidence that the RCMP released to MI5, and that is. Would you say that was like, like that was like the critical 
piece of the puzzle as well. That's at least how the Canadian <laughs> takes on it seem to. Listen, history is told by the winners. And um, so I think we can spin this however we want. <laughs> what were the winners in this? <laughs> yeah, I think that the RCMP can spin this as being like, like it was, it really was though, in, in all accounts, like the confirmation that everyone was looking for to say like he was not who he said he was. And this was kind of like the... The nail in his coffin. Um, and so this critical piece of information leads to Lonsdale's discovery, confirmation, arrest. He gets arrested in January of 1961. He has a trial. Mm-hmm. And he is, even at trial, he refuses to admit to his true identity. Yeah. And he's convicted and sentenced to 25 years in prison for conspiring to pass classified information. Yeah. But how much of his sentence did he serve, Olivia? <laughs> or do you have anything about the trial? Um, I don't, like, I, I feel like I kind of, like, gave tidbits and stuff about what I wanted to say, actually, before, in terms of, like, him kind of, like, taking, like, he he really does like take it on. Like he's like, yeah, I'm guilty of this, but everybody else is not like, which I think is interesting. Um, like I said, I think, yeah, like I think, I think he must be friends with the Cougars or or something like, there's obviously a reason why he's, he's done that. Um, and I think it's also like seen also as kind of like an honorable thing to do. Right. Because like, I, I think that there's, this hope with a lot of Russian spies that like, they're gonna be, um, brought back to Russia via like a, a prisoner swap, right? So he wants to keep his his side of the street like super clean so that when he goes back to Russia, he can be like um, seen as like a heroic figure rather than like a sellout, right? So I think that's also part of it that I think we should like address. Um, but I have a funny story from his time in prison actually that I wanted to say which was that another prisoner was spoke Russian. And so he befriended him mm-hmm. and then like asked him, and I, I don't know why he like suddenly trusted him so quickly, but he said, can you send this letter to my mom? And who was, and he gave like the address and the name of his real mother. And of course, this Russian guy who had no like allegiances to him went immediately to to the British officers and um, gave them the gave them this piece of information and and that was actually uh, another reason or how how they actually connected him to his true identity at the end of the day um, was this was this tip off that they had, um, but of course he didn't have uh, his time in jail was very brief. In 1964, he gets he returns to the Soviet Union because he gets swapped in a spy swap. (laughs) He gets swapped in a spy swap in exchange for an MI5 agent, Greville Wynn. He comes back like the prodigal son of Russia. He gets awarded the honorary security officer medal for his great services to the motherland. He gets a KGB funded memoir or KGB, I don't know, co-written memoir and they put him on a stamp. (laughs) Yeah, I saw that. So funny. But then interestingly, he dies in pretty suspicious circumstances quite quickly after he, uh, he was apparently mushroom 
he's on a mushroom picking expedition in October of 1970. So he was uh, 48 at the time. And, uh, and yeah, he died. And a couple of people have kind of commented that it was a little suspicious and um, who knows? Like, I mean, who, who can say whether it was or it wasn't, or if there, you know, he had done something or said something, maybe said too much in, um, in jail. It's always a possibility, but he obviously, I think the fact that a couple of you have commented that it was like very suspicious circumstances, I think, I think we can maybe draw the conclusion that he had done something to piss somebody off. And so that although the Soviet Union, Russia touted him as being this hero, I don't know if that was necessarily true behind the scenes. It seems really possible that there that this ring was actually much bigger than it was, and these are just mm. the people that got caught in this ring. Um, and so, you know, obviously, if they were they're under diplomatic status, whatever the case may be, and um, of course, like this is largely like confidential information, which has like recently come out and only uh, been accessed by very few people. So. Yeah, there's a lot. I think that there's a lot that we can say that we don't know. And uh, this is just the story that's uh, the kind of mainstream story that's told. So, you know, just just to put a little caveat on the end of that. Hey, folks, I'm Patrick from Historia Canadiana, a podcast about Canada's history as seen through cultural items, most often literature. The show is just getting started, but if you're looking for a different take on how to view the history of a country that way too many people see as boring, well, check out Historia Canadiana. It goes out of its way to show you that Canada is instead a fascinating hub of so many ideas and people. Find Historia Canadiana on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much anywhere, I'd say. I'll see you there. Melody was an illegal, right? So when I read this, I assumed it was being used by the people saying it in the same way that uh, certain racists used to refer to certain people. <laughs> um, but it doesn't mean that at all. Uh, the illegals were uh, an, like an elite specialized group of KGB uh, officers and who, who had like carefully designed identities and often had stolen identities like in the case of Melody and Lonsdale. So these were like deep cover agents. And um, I was trying to get a little more background on like what the illegals were. And I found a bunch of articles about the show, The Americans uh, on FX, which I've seen a few episodes of. Oh my God, and I, um, I ended up reading like a review of the show or like it was like, a cultural piece on the show. And they were part of that they were doing was commenting on how they portrayed the illegals and I thought it was kind of in line what we were talking about with kind of some of the espionage being like silly or boring. And, and the most, the, this author is like most critical of how they portray this so-called elite group because, because okay. former Soviet illegals describe, you know, this work very differently. Like for example, this guy called Jack Barsky, who was in New York during the eighties, the he said most of his time was spent delivering packages by bicycle, going to college, working at MetLife insurance where he was stealing industrial software packaging. Sorry. Where he was stealing industrial software for the KGB, which software, which apparently was commercially available to American companies. <laughs> 
Um, other like former officers kind of describe the work as not being that productive. Um, former KGB general Oleg Kuligan wrote in his memoir that the deep cover illegals were the most secretive and least productive branch of the Washington KGB station, adding that during my five years in Washington, including one year as acting station chief, I never learned of a single case of a Soviet illegal who had penetrated the U.S. government. I wanted to talk about this because I wanted to be careful that we're not kind of like parroting American propaganda, you know, against the Soviets or like feeding into these narratives that these spies are just, you know, these geniuses who are just like (laughs) superhuman because (laughs) from all accounts that are not fictional, like they're clearly not. I think this story is a pretty good example. And yeah, as also an example of how they weren't geniuses. (laughs) I no, why and, I, I and it's the fact that this whole thing is brought down by Houghton because is he's had to send this anti-Semitic letter. Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's also funny because, like, despite the fact that like everyone's like, oh, you know, Malundi is like a good spy. He's smart and everything like that. I'm like, is he like? Do we believe that when he like got caught and he got caught like? quite badly like yeah it was because of Houghton and stuff but like maybe it was his fault for like associating with him too much like I don't know like I just think like this guy's obviously not like an an evil super genius like like no one is you know well maybe they they are and that's we don't know about them because they never got caught you know what I mean like those are the people who truly are geniuses surely yeah looking into the illegals again made me think of Vavilov which Yelena Vavilov was an illegal, but she had two Canadian-born sons. Now, almost every Canadian lawyer knows the name Vavilov, and many of them, like, resent it. Really resent it. And I just think <laughs> it's so funny that the like most boring, nitty-gritty, administrative, <laughs> like, what's the word? Most like monotonous, yeah, legalistic bureaucratic <laughs> case law that exists is about these spies. Again, our point is that they're spending a lot of time sitting in cars, watching people and listening to calls and doing nothing. Yelena Vavilov, the illegal had two Canadian born sons. Apparently they say they, they didn't know their mother was a Russian agent. Um, yeah. And, but the, go- but the government said that the oldest thought that they thought he did the government thought the oldest did know. Yeah. So they apply for passports. They live in Canada their whole lives pretty well, right? Or they were born they here only, or live in the yeah. States? No, they they only know Canada's home is my was my read on it. And they apply for passports, they get denied. So that's why this case law becomes it becomes an administrative law case about the standard of review on reviewing administrative decisions for administrative decision makers, like administrative tribunals and boards. And that's what this case is about. And it's really the most like nitty gritty, very particular point of law. Um, But it's, yeah, it's really about spies. (laughs) I think like the actual decision is like super boring and like super like illegal and tedious, but the story behind it is actually like really cool. Um, Because yeah, I, I I thought it was cool. And this is actually the story that the Americans was allegedly based on. 
that this family. Yeah, because the kids in that show, like, they're born in the States, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like they only know. They only like, know. The and, I, and I, and this was actually like a, a topic that I did find um, in a lot of places. Like these, these illegals come in and then, you know, their kids and, and maybe to some extent, even to some extent them, like don't really have any ties left to Russia. Like they're, they're working for the Russian government, but then for all intents and purposes, like they're Canadian and like they only know Canada. And so then the question becomes like, well, is it even fair to send them back to Russia, these kids? Because like, they don't know, they don't speak Russian. They don't know anything about Russia. Like it's like debatable whether even they knew that their parents were Russian. Like it's like, what what, what are they supposed to do? Like just go to Russia and like try to make a life for themselves. Like that just, there's something about that that like seems to be like unjust as well, you know, like just obviously like we're not, we're not on the side of Russian spies, but like these kids, like I think maybe are just innocent and caught in the crossfires. But anyway, it's a question for another day. Well, that's the logic behind the dream act, right? Now, of course those kids are, and their parents are mostly truly innocent and not like the kids of spies, but sounds (laughs) like you can, I feel like, I feel like the Canadian public has more empathy for the Vavilovs than for the dreamers anyway. Vavilov mom had this identity, Tracy Foley. And in this article by McLean's, they basically interviewed the real mother of Tracy Foley. Oh. And she was not best pleased with the Vavilov stealing the identity of her, you know, child who had died young. And it was very, you know, obviously very sad. Um, anyway, doesn't get back and all get cut. Um, okay. But just to like tie this up with a really nice bow. I don't know when he said this. I think like we can only assume it was maybe in his memoirs because I don't really think he like spoke publicly other than that. Um, but Melody later claimed that Houghton had leaked hundreds of documents on anti-submarine equipment and nuclear submarines to Moscow, uh, which be- that he believed help manufacture new and, uh, and a more silent generation of Soviet submarines. So, you know, this is just another example of them propping themselves up for all intents and purposes. We don't even know if any of these documents helped. What we do know, like not that, uh, not that, uh, not that long ago, there was a a Russian submarine that uh, just like what happened to it? Like it exploded or something. Anyone, anyway, it wasn't efficient and it, ended up killing a bunch of the crew uh, on board. So like, I do remember we, that actually. Yeah. Like what we know is that R- the Russians haven't like really mastered the art of the submarine. <laughs> so, so, you know, how like, good of a job can they really have done? Yeah. So it's just, yeah. I just like, again, I think it's kind of funny and it just like problematizes the whole thing. And like, I think it really speaks to your point too, that like, it's possible that these like five people, like, did nothing and like <laughs> in russia like they're they're on stamps like literally just like crushing it you know and uh and and like we have no reason to believe that they were like good spies and like they got caught so like it's just like i, I think it's true what you say that it's just like important that we like put it in that lens and like see it through that perspective to some extent and the cherry on top of the bow is rcmp found the critical detail that's why this it qualifies as a Canadian story. 
Did we yeah. think it was more Canadian before we started researching? Absolutely. Did we get too far in and had done too much work to abandon this episode? Absolutely. Here you go. <laughs> but listen, I think it's a fun story and um, and I'm okay with it. I actually really enjoyed this one. It's uh, I think it's a story that maybe not a lot of people will know about and I think maybe uh, it might inspire some future espionage episodes, maybe one about Camp X. <laughs> I'm going to say it's going to inspire more future espionage, period. (laughs) No, definitely not that. I think that's all. But make sure that you leave us a five-star review about how funny, smart, and entertaining we are. Uh, Follow us on Instagram, on Twitter, send us an email, whatever. Get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks. See you next Sunday. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.